It's wonderful to see you here on this Memorial Day weekend. And uh, this day is what the church in the West refers to as Trinity Sunday. It's the first Sunday after Pentecost, and it's a time that the church has designated uh, to celebrate the doctrine of the Trinity. And I know that that's something you're all very excited about this morning, and you can feel it just stirring up in your soul. Yes, doctrine of the Trinity, Shandai Obasha, hallelujah. <laughs> Trinity is one of the great mysteries of the church. It emerges uh, in the earliest decades and century after Christ ascends. What do we do with this idea that Jesus, our Christ, is God? who came from God, but has left us God. And so as early as possibly AD 170, we see this word Trinity emerge in Christian writing and in Christian conversation. Of course, the Council of Nicaea becomes this uh, centerpiece of discussion for the topic. And Christians, generally speaking, don't like to talk about it a lot. Uh, preachers don't like to preach about it a lot. No pressure. I was in a conference call this week with Bishop Ed and some other people, and Bishop Ed said to me, he said, you know, Mark, uh, Chris preached the greatest message I've ever heard preached on the Trinity at Sanctuary. You really ought to go listen to it before you preach. <laughs> no pressure. With that being said, if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open it to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, starting at verse 1, begins the story of an encounter of a mystical sort that is appropriate for this day in which we consider God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 of Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, R.T. Kendall, who's an Anglican evangelical scholar and pastor. He said that Trinity for most U.S. evangelicals is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. 
Sometimes I wish that my Bible didn't say holy on it for that very reason. One of the reasons, why would the church pick this text for Trinity Sunday? And one of the primary reasons would be because the song of the seraphs. They don't say holy is the Lord of hosts. They say holy, holy, holy. In Greek, this is is a very important part of liturgy. We'll say this this morning, right? The trisagion, the thrice holy God. And the Christian church early on found resonance between this revelation to the prophet Isaiah and the book of Revelation in which this song is sung. Many people would say that what Isaiah has actually done is he's peeked into the eternal realm and what he's seeing and what he's hearing is actually the eternal song of the throne room that doesn't really stop in some mysterious way. Holy, 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 God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I should say as a disclaimer up front, my goal this morning is to preach the most non-utilitarian, unhelpful sermon I've ever preached in my life. I will offer you no action points, no action steps, no action principles for better living. I think it's a blessing that once a year we get called back to remember on Trinity Sunday, not only is God mysterious, He's not useful. He's a help in a time of trouble, but he's not useful. One of my favorite authors and scholars is an Orthodox bishop named Callistos Ware. If you're looking for a name for your son, Callistos might be worth considering. The quote I'm going to share with you is a little bit long, and I apologize because I normally don't, it's a little bit too long, but it's so good, I I couldn't cut it off anywhere, so just bear with me. But listen to these words, just let them really sink in, because this really gets at the essence of what I'm trying to share. It is not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Can I repeat that? God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Quoting Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is your name in all the earth. St. Gregory of Nyssa says this, God's name is not known, it is wondered at. Robert Jensen would go on to say what? God's name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're not here to unpack the mystery and get our minds all around this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this holy, holy, holy God. We're here to say with Isaiah, oi. That's woe in Hebrew. Oi. No, no, no. I'm not joking. Woe in Hebrew is oi. You might have heard somebody with a Jewish background or everybody in New York go oi. <laughs> what now? Oi vey. This is what 
the essence of Isaiah 6 is about. And on some level, this is what I would hope for us to recover. And this is what I think even the gospel reading we heard this morning gets at, because Nicodemus is sitting with the second person of the Godhead, with Jesus, the eternal son, who was in the beginning with God. And what does it say? It's Jesus talking to him. He says, he was astonished. That's a very fancy way of saying, oi, wait a minute, I have to be born again? I love this turn that Jesus has to say to him, don't be astonished that I'm saying these things to you. The last phrase, the last thing that we have on record of Nicodemus saying to Jesus is, how can these things be? How's that for like your last line? You're going to be in the Holy Gospels for thousands of years for the church to preach about you. And your last line is, how? If I do half a decent job this morning, hopefully we'll walk out of here saying, how is this even possible? Enter Isaiah. It says here, and I don't want to make a whole lot about it because I think preachers have done a good job of it. It says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's important backstory because King Uzziah, after the reign of Solomon, is probably the most prosperous king Israel ever had. King Uzziah, you may remember the stories of the kings of Israel and Judah and the drama that goes on there, right? Could you imagine if they had social media back in the day for these kings and you've all heard of Ahab and Jezebel and whoo, just crazy town, right? Killing their sons, killing their neighbors, trying to get proper, unbelievable drama. Uzziah is interesting because at the beginning of his reign, he's a co-regent with his father. At the end of the reign, he's a co-regent with his son. He reigns for 52 years. And over those 52 years, his prosperity extends not just to agriculture and farming. It extends to the military. It even says that he filled Jerusalem with machines that were developed by inventors He was technologically, uh, financially, politically incredibly successful. At the same time, Assyria, which is a growing empire that would eventually take the northern kingdom captive, Assyria had hit a down point in their political power. So it was like a perfect storm for Uzziah because he didn't have the political and military pressure or the threat bearing down on him during his reign. So this was a time of almost unprecedented peace and prosperity for Israel. And he does something in the midst of all of this success that should cause all of us to pause, and that is he walks in the temple, much like Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, he walks into the temple and he tries to offer incense. And this is an amazing story for a different Sunday, but the high priest and 80 of the priests stand up to this king and they say, you cannot do this. Man, it's easy to stand up to your leader when he's a jerk, but it's really hard to stand up to somebody who's incredibly loved and successful and effective. These priests stand up and they say, no, 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 you can't do this. He gets so angry that God strikes him with leprosy. And it says he lived in a separate house for the rest of his life because he was unclean. As a matter of fact, even when he died, they buried him in a field adjacent to the kings. He wasn't even buried with the kings. 
So this death is a tragic, bizarre, complicated death. Isaiah's vision appears in this context, and we see something that we would expect to see. We'd expect to see the Lord sitting on a throne. What was surprising is the idea that his hem, the hem of his robe would fill the temple. This is Solomon's temple. This is a massive structure. You know, we're still sort of trying to not get lost in this building here. <laughs> we had the Telos class this morning and people were coming in like, where's the chapel again? How do we find this space? You know, like we need tour guides just to get around this space. Imagine this room, which probably has a 30-ish, 35-foot ceiling, being filled with fabric. And then imagine the ceiling being over twice as high as this room. And that fabric that fills the entire space isn't the robe, it's the hem of the robe. I think there are some things that are, we can take away from this. Because this is a bizarre image, to be sure. It seems as if he sees God in a distant sort of vision seated on a throne. And then as he looks around him, he sees this hem just filling all of the space. Isn't it interesting that God is not seated in the temple? His hem is in the temple. And I think the fact is, we immediately get the sense that God is more immense than imagined. The ancient Near East, they would have, this is very common, right? You want to have the biggest God that anybody could ever have. Like, this is just sort of simple logic. There's a Syrian temple that was excavated, and they found that they had carved these footprints at the temple that were allegedly the feet of the God of that temple, and they were three feet in length. If the hem of this God's robe fills up all the space, this God is clearly much bigger than anything Isaiah would have imagined. And this makes me think, is our God too small? J.B. Phillips, the great British writer, actually has a book by that name. Your God is too small. We're talking about Ephesians 3 this morning, and Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians is that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Could you imagine what that would look like? This God, who's the hem of his clothes, fills up massive space. See, and, and I think the problem I immediately have is I feel like when we talk about God being big, we get excited when we should probably be scared. <laughs> like, yeah, rah, we got a big God. And it's like, I don't know if this is safe. I think another thing that we'd see here is God is more mysterious than imagined because we only get to see the hem. We don't even know what the robe looks like. Like, okay, it could be nice. It could be beautiful, it could be odd. We're just looking at a hymn. One of the things that I think is so important for us in this day where we all have Bibles, multiple Bibles in our homes, we have apps on our phone, we can go in an app and, and pick any of 20 plus translations. I think we're operating under the mistaken impression that God is easily comprehended. 
I think we operate under the idea that we know him. The reality may be that we only really know his him. I think clearly we can get the impression that God is more awesome than imagined. I mean, notice his response here. Aside from the oi in verse 5, what does he say? He says, I'm lost. I'm undone. I'm cut off. Like, part of me, especially because I came from such a, uh, an experiential kind of tradition, part of me wonders why my experiences in church were always, like, if they were always either flat or really up. And there was never this scared, I'm a mess, I don't know if I should have seen that experience in church. You know? I, I always feel like some of us were shooting for a high, which is good. I love the high. Anybody else like it when things are up and good, right? Love the high. Uh, the spiritual high. I love that. Just want to clarify. The flat was always sort of like a calibration moment for me. Like, hey, Mark, this isn't all about feelings. But I don't know that I ever really had experiences like this. Where it's like, oh, man. He's, he's feeling this sort of fearsome encounter. He's feeling this awesomeness of God. The psalm this morning talks about the voice of the Lord stripping the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord ripping the oaks apart. The voice of the Lord coming and making the calves give birth. I love this uh, encounter in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, they're, of course, at the mountain of the Lord, and uh, they're get, about to get the Ten Commandments. And uh, they have this line here in the 18th verse. Uh, it says, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. This kind of reminds me of this Isaiah encounter. The mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. Let's stop there for a second. These seraphs, most scholars think they're fiery beings, maybe even fiery serpent-like beings, but they're fiery beings. So we have this smoke, it says, that filled the temple. We have the fiery creatures, the seraphs. And then look at this. It says, the whole mountain shook violently. There's something about the presence of this God that's disarming, that's fascinating, but a little bit scary at the same time. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the one point I'd want to make from Isaiah is that I think God is more obscure than we imagine. All of our preaching, all of our writing, and this is hyperbole, but it's just the way I talk, is all about making Jesus as clear and plain and obvious as we could possibly imagine. And I think that's one of the reasons we're disproportionately caught up with this man, Jesus. It's because of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, he's the most readily accessible. He's the most touchable. He's the most relatable because in our mind, he's one of us. He's human. And it's rational on some level, some weird sort of logic. It's rational to say, this here is God. But I think it's holy to say Father, Son, and Spirit is God. 
There's an obscurity to that that will never satisfy the rational itch that we all have. But God, he has this way. In Psalm 18, listen to these words about God. Verse verse 8. Smoke, here's the smoke again. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. This sounds like Isaiah a little bit, right? He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly upon the wings of the wind. And look at this 11th verse. He made darkness his covering round around him. In the prayer book, when they translate the, this psalm, they say he wraps himself in darkness. His canopy, thick clouds, dark with water. Friends, this is not an obvious Jesus. This is not, hey, what would Jesus do? And we can figure it out real quick. This is as the psalm would, psalmist would go on to say in the 139th psalm, he would say what? And we, we use this in the evening. When we practice the evening office, one of our opening lines is we say what? We say, darkness is not dark to you. For God, darkness and light is, is different than it is for us. And this is what we're seeing here. We're comfortable with what we know about God, but at best, what we know about God is a hymn. (laughs) I mean, this is the eagle-eyed prophet. This is Isaiah. Of all of the prophetic books, his is the biggest, so it has to be the best of some sort, right? He's so important, he gets 66 chapters and probably three authors, but that's a different day to get people upset. Anyway, the point being... (laughs) This guy sees the hymn. And I began to think about this and talking to some friends about this and saying, I almost think this is scandalous because to the Jewish mind, God should have been in the temple, not his hymn. (laughs) In other words, there's a sense I, I would think of disappointment. I'm in the temple, I'm the prophet, I'm seeing a vision. I should be seeing God and I only get the fringe. And it gets worse because not only is there this sort of incomplete, obscure, mysterious picture in front of him, what is the lyric of the song that's being sung? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The next line would have scandalized a faithful Jew. Why? Because the song says, the whole earth is full of his glory. Think about this. The glory, the Shekinah, this is reserved for the holy of holies, for the high priest to see once a year. You're singing this song saying that the whole earth is full of this glory. God specializes. God has a knack for destroying all of our ideas about God on a regular basis. He just has this ability that when you think you've got him figured out, when you think, oh, 
God's enthroned. I'm going to see God in the temple. No, you'll, I'll let you see the hymn. Oh, well, you know, this is how God works, and this is who God shows himself to. And then you're like, oh, no, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. Wait, what? It's almost like Jesus talking about the good shepherd. And what does he say? He says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. Wait, huh, what? See, I think this is part of the reason why Isaiah is lost. It's part of the reason why he's undone is because he's sitting there saying, this is not how you're supposed to behave, God. First of all, you're way too big for me to figure out. Second of all, you should be showing me more than this. Third of all, what is this whole earth stuff? And I feel like what God is doing to Isaiah is exactly what God did to Peter on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house when there's another prophetic vision and a sheet comes down and Peter says, no way, Lord, this cannot be true. This cannot be possible. And what is God doing? God is consistently tearing down vain imaginations. And it's hard for us to hear that. Because we try so hard to study, we try so hard to learn, we try so hard to get it right. And can I at least maybe say it this way? I think we've got it as right as we can get it for now. <laughs> for those of us, if you were like me, that you grew up in a community where everything was like, you had to have absolute truth and it had to be objectively absolutely true. This is unsettling. Because I'm saying... If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and Jesus is part of this complex, mysterious thing, we'll never get our minds all around this thing. The moment we start being okay with that, the moment we start seeing our Christian life as a life of repenting, of changing our mind about God, coming into a fuller knowledge of God. That will never stop for us. Walking with God, following Jesus, growing into the head of the church is, is this life of change, of movement. It's dynamic. It's mysterious. And this is why Trinity Sunday is a blessing in my opinion. I think Jesus has been kidnapped out of the Godhead and suddenly, as Dr. Green did say, I may have watched part of the sermon. It might have been a different sermon. What does he say? He says, you're left with what? Two men and a bird. Or two men and a Bible. And Jesus, this may be upsetting, and I don't want to upset anybody. I like you all. You're great. But here's the thing. Jesus is no more or less accessible to us than the Father or the Spirit. Because if we took time this morning to talk about what sort of human Jesus was, it would probably bother all of us. Because he was a human, but he was human like no one else had ever been human. How can these things be? You see, the three-in-oneness of God is precisely the point. It's precisely to bring us to this place to say, God is really other than anything I could imagine. And I think this is where uh, our version of Christianity here in America has really not done us any favors because it's been 
in my opinion, reductionistic, overly simplistic, mystery stripped out, emphasis on how can Jesus give you a better life? What can I do to get you into a better life today? When the message really should have been, oi, I'm undone. John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher, says this, It is obvious from the very words of Isaiah that he saw God because of God's condescension. Let's stop there for a second. We have to realize that this idea where we, we do have boldness of access to God, but it is through grace. We should not come presumptuously into the presence of God. We come humbly yet confidently, because God is condescending in the best way. What does he say? I saw the Lord sitting on a high and lofty throne, but God is not sitting down. (laughs) Beings with bodies sit. I have to stop again. I'm sorry. When, has anybody ever imagined what it would be like when you get to heaven? Please be honest and raise your hand with me because I know I've done it. Don't make me feel like a dummy up here, right? Some of you, some of you are too cool for school. It's all right. Here's the deal. Have you ever imagined, Colton has for sure, have you ever imagined you get to heaven and there's this white throne, like gleaming, you need shades, like kind of take it in, and it's sort of, you can see a being sitting on it, but you can't identify the face. And then to the right, our left, there's a smaller throne, And, oh, I know that, I know that face. I want to see Jesus. Remember that song? There he is. Ha ha. Where's the spirit? Immediately we've fallen into heresy, haven't we? Because we've just separated the father and the son. It's time to go. I'll finish Chrysostom's quote. God is not sitting down because God is not a being. (laughs) Just want that to sit with you. Isaiah also said, on a throne, but God is not encompassed by a throne because divinity cannot be contained within boundaries. That said, the seraphim could not endure the condescension of God, although they were nearby. He said the seraphim stood around him because he wanted to make it clear that although the seraphim are closer to the essence of God than human beings are, they cannot look upon his essence simply because they are closer to it. He is not referring to place in a localized sense. Is anybody confused by this quote? It did its job. Thank you. The point is, there's not a throne. God is not sitting. Because he's not a being. Being is in him. God is not a man. They would say that he should lie. Let's just stop there for a minute. God is not a man. God is God. He is holy, holy, holy. With all due respect, and I say this as someone who loves Jesus, as someone who is is serving the church, he is strange, strange, strange. He is other, other, other. He is weird, weird, weird.
And I don't want to send you out of here despairing. I want to send you out with hope. God is concerned about your life. But we do not worship God because he's useful to us. We worship God because he is God. We worship God because he is greater beyond he is sublime. And even when we say the word God, would I suggest we should say it with a little bit less confidence, starting with me? Because I don't even really feel like I know too much about God. Bishop Ed has done a beautiful job of drilling into so many of us this phrase from Rudolf Otto, Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans. Fascinans, of course, is this potent charm, this captivating attractiveness. And we all love the idea that God is charming and beautiful, and we love to sing songs about that. But then there's the tremendum. There's the part of God that is overpowering, that reminds us we really are creatures. There's the mysterium, that God is wholly other, and we experience him with blank wonder. In other words, God is so out there on some level, it scares us. Not like the boogeyman scares us and not like dread scared, like sober you up like that. That's what I feel. Fascinons. I'm fascinated at tremendum, but I'm scared to death at the same time. So I just want to close with the thought about this hymn, this mysterious hymn. Looking at a hymn thinking, I wonder what the rest of the garment looks like. I wonder what the person wearing the garment looks like. I wonder what they're like. See, I think we can be easily frustrated and and maybe even disoriented when we start to hear these quotes and think these thoughts. And on Trinity Sunday, we encounter this idea of God that's, I just want my Jesus. Stop doing this to me. I didn't like that sermon. Why did I go to, I should have gone away on Memorial Day weekend. I think as Christians, we can have our temple experience, and hopefully you're having some small version of it this morning, where you came in thinking you knew who God was, and you walk out realizing we, none of us altogether, really have that much of a clue. Can I tell you, though, the hymn is enough? What you do know, what you do see, it's enough. Like Isaiah I think all of us in the room this morning need to discover that there's a whole lot more to God than we imagined. But like the woman in the Gospels who had the issue of blood, we also need to know that God will always give us as much of himself as we need to us. You see, that woman, she didn't need to see the robe. All she needed to do was touch the hem. And that hem is on a seamless garment, which means if you touch the hem, you've touched the whole thing. God 
has not given us all of himself because we can't handle all of himself. But he will always give us as much of himself as we will ever need. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit who has sealed us. And I pray right now for myself and for everybody in this room. God, I feel inadequate trying to preach this sermon but I pray that somehow you'd use the fumbling, bumbling nature of the sermon, the foolishness of preaching, to actually make the point this morning. And that is we really are children playing about not even really understanding the greatness of our Father. I pray for the grace of awe, the grace of wonder, that fascinans et tremendum, I pray that it would come upon us. That on this day, we'd celebrate the fact that we have a God who is beyond our understanding. Help us walk in light of that. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.